following along in the Pew Bible, it's found on page 1015. So 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we praise you, Jesus. You have, you've called us from darkness into your marvelous light. And Lord, help us to show your character and all we do and say. Let your light shine through us so that others may be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, thank you, Roger, for reading our text this morning. Appreciate that. Today, uh, the purpose for uh, this Sunday being Orphan, our Widows and Orphans Sunday, is to highlight and emphasize God's call to care for widows and orphans, those who are in great need for care and specifically for relationships. Um, and these are people often used and often abused by the world and yet should be loved, supported, equipped by God's people. We, as God's people, a reflection of God's heart, His hands and feet in the world, are meant to bring about His purposes, ultimately the glorification of His name. Uh, as a church, we do all that we do for the glory of God. One of those ways in which we are called to bring about the glory of God's name is to reflect his heart of compassion towards those specifically in great need. Although that compassion should be reflected to everyone, there are those in great need. And we read that in our call to worship this morning. God's heart cares for the fatherless and for the widows. And so this morning... We are going to seek to look at that as we look into this passage here in 1 Peter. Uh, my main point in 1 Peter here is this. The Christians are called to glorify God by living lives full of His good deeds. We're called to glorify God through living lives full of His good deeds. And so this morning... It is my hope and intention that as we look into chapter 2 of 1 Peter, we might see this call, hear this call, and seek to reflect this call in the way that we live. And if you are not a Christian, that you would see this morning the glorious gospel that Jesus Christ presents to all of us, all of us having been in need of salvation from our sins and from God's wrath for our sins. And so able to see that and respond to that this morning. Before we do, would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we ask you to bless our time. We thank you for uh, the prayer that Roger already gave in regards to this time together with your word open, Lord. May, uh, may we hear, see, know, and do what you have for us today. Lord, may we be instruments in your hands to seek to bring about your good to this world that you created, this world that is fallen into sin, and yet as we even looked at last week, Lord, you, you will redeem it all. 
you will bring about your new heavens and new earth. And so while we still live, looking forward to that day, Lord, may we live as a reflection of that faith in your future grace. We pray this morning not just for ourselves, Lord, but we pray for uh, other churches in our area here. This morning we pray for Faith Bible Church. Uh, we're so thankful for their invitation to let us come, part of their trunk or treat. Lord, we continue to ask your blessing upon them. And we're so thankful that Kevin's going to be uh, preaching for us on December 1st while I'm in Africa. So be with, be with them this morning, though, as the word is open. The word is preached. Lord, as, as it is with us, may it be with them as well, Lord, that they would exalt your son, Jesus Christ. May they see him as glorious, the fount of all blessing. And this morning, may they be encouraged to live lives uh, as servants of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so thankful for them. We pray blessings upon them today. Bless us as well. We look to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians are called to glorify God by living lives full of his good deeds. Our text this morning, we can see these ideas represented in here. And we're going to walk through that by looking at four Questions And in order to answer some of the questions, we're going to have to look at the context of First uh, Peter and see how Peter uses different words or see how Peter defines these things uh, that we're looking at here in this text. And it's important that we approach uh, Scripture in that way, lest we pull something out of context and begin to try to make it say something that it does not. And so it's important that we're able to understand and see that. The first question we'll be looking at this morning is, who are the beloved? We see in our text here, verse 11, it starts out with, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So here we have to ask ourselves, who are the beloved? Now, most naturally, we want to think, well, I'm a pretty nice person. Lots of people love me. I must be the beloved, right? Well, maybe you are, maybe you are. Let's see what Peter says to us about the beloved. Obviously, we see that they are described, even in this verse, as sojourners and exiles. But that ultimately doesn't really tell us much more than, than the fact that they don't fit in in a certain place. Is this physical? Is this spiritual? Um, in verse 1, as Peter is writing, he writes about the elect exiles who dispersed throughout the different nations, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So verse, chapter 1, verse 1, we read this word exile, and yet is that, what, is that what Peter's intention here is for us, that we would understand he's just writing to those beloved who are sojourners and exiles, especially when he says what they're supposed to do. He describes the spiritual reality that they're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, but live in a way, in a conduct among the Gentiles that is honorable. So obviously there, there could clearly be a physical aspect to them being sojourners or exiles. There could also be a spiritual aspect, which is definitely clear through the rest of Scripture that we as God's people do not have our citizenship here on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven, that we live as strangers in this world. So definitely could be that, but Peter gives us more than just that to define who the beloved is. In fact, if we turn back to chapter 2, verse 5, we see a description of who these beloved are. 
In verse 4, it describes Jesus Christ as being the living stone that was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus was the glorious chosen one, the promised one, the precious one sent by God to give life to his people. And then in verse 5, it says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here the beloved are described as those living stones connected to the living stone, Jesus Christ. And in turn, what are they? They're a part of now a spiritual house. That they are now have become spiritually alive. And we're told we're dead in our trespasses of sin. Spiritually, we do not have life in ourselves. And yet, what Peter is saying here is that we have been placed into the spiritual house through the living stone, Jesus Christ. He is the one who has made us a part of this spiritual house. He has brought spiritual life to His people. We're told that it's through the the gift of God sending His Son, Jesus Christ, and His willingness to die on a cross to bear the burden of our sins, and that then in turn our response of trusting in Him, that this is the means by which we are saved. And And in being saved, we are placed into this spiritual house, new life given to us. But not only that, we are a holy priesthood. It's described here. These people, these beloved, they're a holy priesthood. Allowing, allowing them to then have access to God and to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And notice again the emphasis by Peter here in verse 5 that it's through Jesus Christ. Our access to God, our ability to make sacrifices that are acceptable to Him, it's through Jesus Christ. He alone gives us access. He alone makes us into this spiritual holy priesthood that is able to stand before God acceptable. These spiritual sacrifices were not meant to be reading into that as if that somehow these sacrifices make us acceptable because that's not how the phrase goes. We are able to make spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable because they come through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices don't save us. They don't add to our acceptance. But they are rather the response to being made holy priests before God. That we give of ourselves in sacrifice to the God who has saved us and who has now enabled us to live differently than before. So, so here, who are these beloved? Well, they're these living stones put into a spiritual house and made into a holy priesthood that is able to live lives that are acceptable before God. Why? Because they have been given this new life through Jesus Christ. But we also can see in verse 9 another description of the beloved. Who are the beloved? That you are a chosen race royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here again, we see this is 
a people that is changed, again, by the gospel into what? Into a priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people who are now possessed by God. We are His people. In turn, just like in verse 5, the people that have been changed by the gospel now live lives of sacrifice that are acceptable to God, or we could we could say live lives of worship to God. So here in verse 9, we're told that we have also been changed by the gospel to live lives of proclamation about God. What do we do? We're, we're this race and priesthood and nation specifically chosen by God as his people to do what? To proclaim the excellencies of him who did what? Called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, what is the emphasis here is not that we somehow made ourselves this or worked hard to become this or were good enough to be this, but rather God himself initiated his love towards us in calling us out of our darkness of sin and shame and into his marvelous light, being made a part of his spiritual house, his spiritual family, being made his people, and that's who the beloved is. And so when Peter pens all these words and then gets to Verse 11, and says, Beloved. That's who he's referring to. Beloved are the people changed by the gospel to live lives of worship and proclamation. And so this God, this God in his holiness who created all things and owns all things, who created mankind, to serve him and to care for this world that he created. And yet in their rebellion against, against him and in their sin, they chose to live in darkness. Their sin led them to this dark kingdom that we all start in. And yet God in his mercy sends Jesus Christ so that through Jesus Christ they might be changed, brought out of darkness into marvelous light. That our response is to turn from our sins and believe. And in turn, as we do that, as we do that, we can then read as well verse 11 for ourselves. When Peter writes, beloved, he is writing then to us. And we are part of this people if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. So is this you? Are you part of the beloved? I hope, I hope that you are. And if not, today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. So that then the rest of these verses can be for you as well. Which leads us to the second question. Why are the beloved urged? I urge you. I strongly urge ask of you, I call you, I urge you, is what Peter says here, to those who are loved by God and have been changed by the gospel. Now, Peter says here, I urge you, first of all, because they are sojourners and exiles in relationship to this world. They have no lasting city, as Hebrews 13, 14 describes us as, or in verse 10 even here, what does it say? You were Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received 
mercy. Once you were just a part of the world. Now God has called you out. You're different and distinct. And because of that, then Peter says, I can urge you, based upon all that God has done for you, based upon all you of, of who you are in Christ, I can urge you to live in certain ways. So because you're God's people, because you've received God's mercy. In fact, it's important for us to maybe stop for a minute and recognize in verse 10, this is not because of us. Not because we were good enough. When it talks about receiving mercy, mercy is not something you get because you are good enough to get it. It's not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. In fact, I hear the echoes of Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? But when we come here and he's urging us, we're being urged as people who have received, not earned. That's important to remember. Otherwise, we may approach this with pride saying, well, Look how good I am. I'm one of the priesthood. I'm one of the chosen. You don't need to be urging me. No, you received mercy. You did not deserve it. You were put in a family that you did not deserve. You are part of God's people. Yes, sojourners and exiles in this world, but part of God's people. Christians. We are made to be sojourners in this world. And we have to ask the question, are, are we sojourners? Those of you here who claim to be part of the beloved, are you sojourners in this world or have you settled? Are you, is your primary identity one of God's people who's received mercy? Or is that just something that's secondary to you? Well, I go to church on Sunday. But it's not really that important. And God wouldn't mind if I set him aside every once in a while. You know, I, I'm usually serving him. I usually care about him. So maybe I need some me time. Time to myself. That's not, that's not how Peter is writing here. That's not how he describes us. Our lives are sacrifices acceptable to God. Our lives are lived to proclaim his majesty. We're sojourners and exiles. Because we're sojourners and exiles in this world and we belong to God as his beloved, he therefore urges us to live certain lives and rightly urges us. We're meant to live as people set apart by God's mercy for himself. Or as Romans 14, as Paul writes, for none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are his. He has every right to urge us because we are his why are the beloved urged because we're gods and therefore he strongly calls us 
encourages us, urges us to certain things here in this text, which leads us to this third question. What are the beloved urged to do? What are we called to do? Well, the first thing we read here, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, I think we rightly and wrongly read into that our sin. And truly, throughout the New Testament, the flesh is often a description of our sinful nature. But when we come here to Peter, we find that he often uses flesh not to refer specifically to our sinful nature, but just to our natural disposition, our natural nature, which happens to be sinful. But it's important to understand the distinction. So you go back to chapter 1 at the very end. He says, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. He's not just talking about our sinfulness. He's talking about all of us, like our, our physicalness. We wither. In fact, the other uses of flesh in here in chapter 3 and chapter 4 refer to Christ coming in the flesh so that he might be able to die. So in light of Peter's use of the flesh, I think it's best not to just read into here sinful passions, which I think we naturally want to with our understanding of the New Testament, but our natural passions. There are a lot of natural passions that we wouldn't necessarily consider sinful in and of themselves. So there's a natural compassion that I have toward my kids, a love that I have towards them. That's not necessarily sinful. I would hope not. I think I'm supposed to love them. And yet, Jesus tells me, if I love father, mother, sister, brother, wife, more than him, I cannot be his disciple. That there are natural passions that have to be placed in the right place in order to not be sinful. And if they're not, they become sinful. Here's how I write it. These natural passions are sinful when they are not pursued for God's glory. And to such a degree that at times these natural passions, which include our sinful passions, but include include some that would not necessarily be sinful in and of themselves, need to be abstained from at times in order to live for God. Another way, I think, to say this is don't live for yourself. Don't live for yourself. Don't be governed by your natural passions, the passions of your flesh. Don't be governed by your own desires, but rather be governed by God's desires. And that can be difficult to live in this life. I mean, we all have desires for comfort. I mean, we don't naturally put ourselves into 
painful, difficult situations. We don't normally choose those. If I have ever had to sit down and have a difficult discussion with you, or if I do in the future, I'm going to tell you this is not something I enjoy. <laughs> we don't enjoy those things. Right? We're, we want comfort. We want our life to be easy. We want things that, that we enjoy. Those things are what we tend to pursue. And, and some of them fall into the overtly sinful acts that God himself declares us not to do. And others of them, he says, we, we should do and can do in its proper place. But the problem is if we just rely on our natural passions to guide us without God describing what the proper place is and what God describes as sin, we aren't going to be living for him. We're going to be living for us. And that is a problem. We are His people. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, people have defined it in all sorts of crazy ways, but we're trying to define it biblically. To be a Christian, to be the beloved, it means that we are God's. And therefore, we must abstain from the passions of our flesh. And what, what does it look like here? It says it is war. It is war that is raging within us. There is this desire for ourselves to be king. And it cannot be. We are not king. In fact, what clearly demonstrates that we are not kings, we cannot save ourselves. We have to depend on another. So this war that rages in us, we must recognize it. We must know that it's there. We must know that there are natural desires that wage war within us, and we must fight against them. Oh, we can go back to Romans chapter 6, where he reminds us of this very war that is within us. Here, he specifically talks about sin. Verse 12, let, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to obey its passions. But ultimately, at the end of the day, for us to be king and Jesus not to be king is the most outrageous of sins. What does he go on to say here? Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life in your members of God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And one of the, uh, one of the interpretations of that word instrument, weapons of war. Do not present your members to sin as weapons of war for unrighteousness, but present your members to God as weapons of war for righteousness. What does Peter say? Don't abstain 
Abstain from the passion of the flesh. Why? Which wage war against your soul. Don't take your own passions and turn them over to sin as weapons so that you live unrighteously. You live outside of the rightness that God calls us to live. What is unrighteousness? Is living a different way than what God describes as right. And He's God. So He gets to define what is right. And He's the one, therefore, that declares what righteousness is. And we're meant to yield over our members to Him so that so that they might be weapons of war in our soul for righteousness. Not meant to live for ourselves. Rather, in turn, he says, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may what? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here we see that we are both called to abstain from the passions of the flesh, but then to live honorably. Our conduct should be honorable. But not only that, that conduct that's honorable is described, therefore, that they might see what? Your good deeds. So we're meant to live in a way that's honorable, in a way that is demonstrating good deeds. And what this encompasses is all that God commands of us. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good work, Ephesians 2.10. This is what is meant to be flowing out of our life, and it encompasses all that God has commanded us to do. And we're to know all that God's commanded us to do. We're to study it and learn it and know it. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples that's part of the job of discipling others. Go, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. All that He's commanded us. Why do we need to know it? Because we need to live it. That's what we've been saved to do, is to live out, is to then go back to verse 5, offer our lives as spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. To live lives that proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of this darkness into the marvelous light. We're meant to live out all that God commands us to do so that our conduct is honorable before all men. And even when they speak evil against us, what do they see? They see our good deeds. Now, the fact is we're not perfect, and so they may very well speak evil against us, and rightly so. That's not what he's talking about here. We sin. What do we need to do? We need to repent. We need to ask forgiveness. We need to make things right. We need to have restitution. But what he's saying here, no, you have been changed by the gospel to live out your life a certain way according to my ways. And that's what is meant to be seen in each of our lives. None of us can sit back in our pews and say, well, you know what? God saved me. That's enough. God saved you for a purpose and a reason in this life. And then the next, we've already looked at that last week. And what's to come? Huh, how can we not live for him now? I started laughing like weird. <laughs> Just excited, yeah. So, yeah, how can we not live 
for him now when we know what's coming next. And so this call here is for this. But in light of our emphasis on widows and orphans, I want to focus on that specifically here. We know this is a call for God's people because we read in James 1 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and, and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And specifically within a family, even God gets more specific about it. And in in, Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 8, he says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and in that section it's specifically talking about widows, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The call on God's people to care for widows and orphans is a strong call. It's an urge that is made to reflect God's heart and God's command to his people to care for those who are often used and abused in our world today. But as they see our conduct in these areas, our honorable conduct, even though they may speak evil against us, they see our deeds and cannot help but glorify God. So what does this look like? Well, inside your family, I think First Timothy is clear. Like if you have widows in your family, especially in your household, maybe maybe Paul there is thinking of, you know, a son who's whose mother, father now widowed. Care for them. Make sure they are well taken care of, either directly by you or indirectly through someone you've set up. That the call is to care for them. Like that is something that Christians just do. Because that's who we are, because that's who God has made us to be. And in fact, I mean we could we could go on to apply uh, some other principles to that, where in first John, John reminds us that there are many who say they love God, but how can you love God whom you do not see if you do not love your brother or your sister whom you do see? Like We understand where Paul's coming from. It seems kind of harsh. Like, well, if they don't take care of them, they are worse than an unbeliever. Yeah, because they know what the truth is and they choose not to do it. Unbelievers don't have this new life in them. They don't know the truth. Now, here's a person who claims to be a Christian who claims to have this new life in him, and yet chooses not to obey it. And Paul's like, they are wicked. I get it. They're not without hope. Peter's telling them, abstain from the passions of your flesh that naturally desire to make your life easier, make your life comfortable, and give of yourself to care for the needs of others. That's the call here. That's what we're supposed to do, the call. It is right there. <laughs> Try not to miss any opportunities. Right. So we got the call. Don't look over there. Don't embarrass them. They don't need that. All right. We, we need to live this way as Christians, caring for the needs of others. That, that's inside your family, but it also includes outside your family as well. I ask you, Christian, is there anyone in your neighborhood who knows a widow? 
Have you tried to see if their family is caring for them? And if not, might not God have placed you in that neighborhood? Maybe partly for this purpose, at least, so that you could live out God's call to care for a widow? Some of the ways that we seek to care for orphans specifically, but also sometimes by proxy widows as well, at least in our sponsorship of Gastonia, is through child sponsorship. So as a church, we have adopted and sponsored little Gastonia, and we've been doing this for years, and every time we get a new update, I'm like, man, he's a lot older now. And uh, just praying for him and sending support so that he can go to school. And it actually is care for the fatherless. He doesn't have a father. But he does live with his mother. And so in turn, our care for him is also care for his mother who is living as a widow without a husband, without a father in the home. Maybe that would be a call of God for you. We also sponsor, um, we sponsored uh, Peter Makongo and, uh, for a while until he aged out. So we were excited that uh, uh, he was able to get through his schooling, and we continue to pray for him. And uh, but we uh, then sponsored another, and maybe that's that's an opportunity you want to look into. We love Covenant Mercies; they're a great organization. You could even sponsor the organization. There's just some ways in which you can get involved by sponsoring a child or a widow. We uh, we do Operation Christmas Child. And uh, every year we pack boxes, we send those out to children around the world, opportunity both to share the gospel and to share love and fun and enjoyment. So we pack those boxes, those boxes are out there, you can take one of your boxes. What we do, we normally pack like a plastic bin, and so not only do they get everything in the bin, but they get the bin too, um, that they get to keep and they can use to store stuff and everything. Pack boxes for them, um, show your care. One of the things I would encourage you to do is go on the website as you're packing and see what they suggest and what they don't suggest. You know, so we're trying to care for the orphan, so it's not necessarily what you would want to get in a box or what I would want to get in a box, although I'm very tempted when I'm walking down the toy aisle. I would like that. <laughs> um, but some of the things that we wouldn't even think of, like in some cultures, certain animals are not enjoyed. So if you bought a stuffed animal, uh, a certain animal, and a kid got that, they would actually be more scared of it than enjoying it. So that's all on their website. They kind of tell you some of that stuff. So that, but, but go on there, do your research, serve and care for orphans in other countries. Another area that I think is definitely linked to this is the, the idea of the pro-life movement and, and supporting our uh, local um, pregnancy resource center, Living Alternatives. Uh, just, just think about, for instance, so, so what happens for someone to become an orphan? Well, sometimes it's their parents die. Definitely true that that happens. But sometimes they give their children up and, um, and into a life of um, orphanages, into a, li- a parentless life. But, I mean, how, uh, how much more giving up can you consider than abortion? Parents completely abandoning their child to death. And our call to care for the orphans and their afflictions is a call to care for those whom maybe their parents providentially were taken out of their life or their parents chose to be out of their life. 
in abortion, that is definitely the case. Parents choosing not to protect their children, not to care for their children, not to take their children. And so the opportunities that we have to support something like Living Alternatives, maybe go volunteer there, maybe support some different initiatives in our state, vote in such a way that supports the protection of life of these children is one way to be involved in care for orphans. In turn, um, as well, sometimes abortion occurs because the mother doesn't have any support anywhere. And in essence, functioning like a widow. And for us to be able to come alongside them, many of you have, have um, volunteered at the Pregnancy Resource Center, and a lot of that time is spent talking and caring for this mother who at times feels all alone. And this is an opportunity for you to come and to care and to show love. So maybe that would be a way that you could live out uh, these good deeds and live honorably amongst those around us. Another opportunity is foster care. And our family has been involved in that uh, for quite a while through Safe Families and now through uh, official foster care. And yes, it is hard. And uh, yes, it is not easy. And um, But it's not true when people come up and say we couldn't do that because we can. It's hard, but you can. And part of doing that is of setting aside the passions of your flesh for a life of ease, for a life of comfort, for a life with less pain, because it is painful when they leave. And if I talk too much about it, I will cry. <laughs> I will. It'll happen. Uh, as we've had them leave, there have been months where every day was a cry fest. I don't normally admit that, but I will admit it today. And uh, yeah, that's, that is hard, but it, it's not something you couldn't do. Um, and they need it. In fact, I, I haven't, I didn't ask my kids if I could share this, but I'm going to share it anyway. Hopefully you're okay with it. But there have been many times when we've gone to them and said, do we want to do this again? This was really hard. And my kids' response are, if, if we don't, who will? If we don't, who will? And, I mean, that's the kind of heart that's being described here in First Peter 2. The willingness to set aside the passions of the flesh, which means sometimes life is pain. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's difficult. And yet we choose because that's the way we live out the good deeds of our Father. Or adoption might be an option as well. Or you say, well, those, those, those are not really where I'm at right now, but we'll support that then. Support foster care. Support adoption. Look for organizations that you can help with. Help, help people who are uh, seeking to care. I, I appreciate the many people in this congregation who constantly are asking, do you guys need something? Do you guys need, you know, especially since we've just gotten babies in this traditional foster care thing so far. If you're like, can I get some diapers? Can I get some, you know, that is so helpful and that's encouraging. Um, so thank you for that. But there are other people who are foster carers and who, who adopt here in our area. There are many organizations. We can support those and help to see orphans cared for in our community. Number four, there's a number of applicational things. And I'd be glad to talk to you more about those if you're interested in, in seeing other ways that you can be involved. 
or help with how to be involved, I'll be glad to help you with that. For for why are the beloved urged to do these things? It's clear in verse 12, he's using Gentiles to refer to the world. He's not trying to say that all Gentiles are worldly. I mean, I'm, I'm not, it's non-Jew, so I'm not a Jew. Um, so he's not trying to say um, that all Gentiles are of the world, but rather he's using this as a contrast to the way that the Bible often talks about the world versus God's people. And so it's right for us to understand that here he's referring to unbelievers. And what does he say here? That unbelievers would see the good deeds. All right? So that's part of why we do it. So part of our mission is to spread the gospel of who, who God is. But how good is it if we talk a lot about how great God is and how everybody should follow after him and believe in him, and then we don't do anything? For him, because of him. You're gonna be like, well, how, how good is he? Now it's ultimately, you know, they're seeing our good deeds, is what it says. But notice it's not, it's not to make much of us, right? That's not, that's not why we let them see our good deeds. It's not to make much of us. And on top of that, we have to realize that it's not just saying that that all they see would be our good deeds. Because before that, what are we told? We're the beloved who are called to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we can't just say, well, we'll do good deeds, and hopefully they'll see the gospel in those, because that doesn't work. The gospel is linguistic. It needs to be spoken. It needs to be heard. And therefore, the one who hears then believes. How will they hear? Well, someone will preach it to them. This is Paul in Romans 11. So this preaching of the gospel then has to be backed up with good deeds. And that's what's being called upon here. These good deeds are then seen by the people that are claiming to be Christians. And because they're seen, what happens then? Unbelievers then glorify God. Blows my mind. I'm like, well, we're the church. Yeah, we're supposed to glorify God. I mean, it's on our wall over there for God's glory. That's what we're doing. But what he says here is if, the, if, if we as Christians would live like Christians, the unbelieving world would see our good deeds that only happen because we're Christian, that are given to us through the work of Jesus Christ, making us new. If they would see that, then they would glorify God. Amazing. So why are the beloved to do these things? Ultimately, it all leads back to this glorification of God, this manifestation of the name of God. And why would we want to do that? Don't we want to be the ones that are known? You know why? Who, who are we? We're just people who received mercy. We're people that didn't deserve to be a part of God's people and now are made part of God's people who were in utter darkness. And now by His grace and His grace alone, He's brought us into marvelous light. And so what do we want to do? We want to say, Jesus is glorious. I'm not glorious. Jesus is glorious. And if, and if I could possibly bring glory to God by actually just living out the life he's given me, oh, let me do it. And if it costs me something, let it cost me something. God didn't withhold his own son from me. He will not withhold from me all things. 
What a glorious verse. What a glorious truth. But then you read down, what does it say? You'll face persecution. You'll face the sword. You'll face all sorts of stuff, but nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, yeah, we will live lives of sacrifice, but it is all worth it. As God receives the glory and as we stand with him in eternity, as we looked at last week in Revelation 21, stand with him in eternity and we see him make all things new. How glorious. Notice it says they will bring glory to God on the day of visitation. There's two possible understandings here. One is God's mercy, merciful visitation to them. One possible understanding is that when God visits them and demonstrating his mercy as they hear you preach the gospel to them and then as they see it lived out in their lives, as the Holy Spirit convicts them of sin, justice, and righteousness, and then as they respond in belief, when he visits them in his mercy, Verse 10 is now true of them. They were once not a people, and now they've become a people. That their hearts and minds will rejoice in glory in the Father like we do. Or it may be speaking of what we saw in Revelation 21. That at the end of days, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that even in their unbelief, having seen the gospel lived out in us, having heard us proclaim the gospel to them, they are without excuse, and at the end of days, they give glory to the one who deserves glory. So our application today, are you part of the Beloved? Are you a Christian saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone? I pray that you are, and if not, that you would be today. And if you are part of the beloved, then you have been empowered to live for God, to live for Him by caring for others. Let your love for God, we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then overflow in love for our neighbor. Bring him glory. This morning we're going to be moving into celebrating our communion. And it is a celebration of Jesus' work to make us the beloved. His power that then empowers us. His life that gives us life. As we come to this table, we come celebrating what Jesus Christ has done. We don't come because of all the good deeds we happen to have done this week, though I hope you have done them. We come knowing that the only reason we did any good deeds this week is because of Jesus Christ. He alone, He alone is who saves us. He alone is who gives us life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, your graciousness, and the fact that there even exists a beloved to begin with. That exists a people that are yours, where we were all destined for hell, deserving of it, and yet you gave us grace and mercy. 
so we praise and we thank you. And this morning, as we continue to worship you, as we come to celebrate communion in a few minutes, Lord, may your Son be exalted and glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.